Hello and welcome to the Hoover Institution's tribute to Robert Conquest, a senior research fellow and scholar curator at Hoover for 28 years who passed away in 2015. A recipient of the Presidential Medal of Freedom in 2005, Robert Conquest was a renowned historian of Soviet politics and foreign policy. His landmark work, The Great Terror, Stalin's Purge of the 30s, remains one of the most influential studies of Soviet history more than 35 years after its publication, and has been translated into more than 20 languages. More than a celebrated historian, Conquest was also a talented man of letters, publishing eight volumes of poetry and serving as a literary editor of the London Spectator. In this panel, entitled Conquest's Influence on the Reagan Administration, we'll hear from George P. Schultz, the Thomas W. and Susan B. Ford Distinguished Fellow at the Hoover Institution and President Reagan's Secretary of State from 1982 to 1989. Schultz is introduced by our moderator, Peter Robinson, a research fellow at Hoover and a speechwriter for President Reagan. The panel was recorded on January 25th, 2016. From, um, from Bob's influence on Lady Thatcher to his influence on Ronald Reagan. By the way, I might begin with one story, the question about nuclear payloads and throw weights and so forth reminded me of. I was told this shortly after the end of the Reagan administration by Hugh Seide, the great magazine man who wrote for Time magazine. On Air Force One on the way back from the Geneva summit, Hugh Seide went forward and interviewed Ronald Reagan and then they were friends. They'd known each other for a long time. Seide closed his notebook and said, by the way, Mr. President, I have to confess quite a few of us were relieved that you performed so well in Geneva. And Ronald Reagan said, oh, really? What were you worried about? And Hugh Seide found himself saying, well, you know, this business of nuclear weapons, payloads, throw weights, it gets very confusing. It's complicated. And Reagan said, oh, Hugh, Gorbachev doesn't know any of that stuff either. <laughs> I'm about to be corrected. <clears throat> A very brief final reset in this conference on the Cold War simply to frame one more time what we were facing when Margaret Thatcher came into office and Ronald Reagan came into office. A before and an after picture. The before picture, we have a Soviet Union which is self-confident, belligerent. Between World War II and the late 1970s, the Soviet Union had assembled the biggest army on Earth. It had transformed its coastal defense force into a vast blue water navy and it had amassed an arsenal of thousands of nuclear weapons. It had crushed uprisings in East Germany in 53, Hungary in 56, Czechoslovakia in 68. It had armed and funded communist insurgencies in Vietnam, North Korea, and more than half a dozen nations in Central America, Latin America, in Africa. In 1977, it had begun deploying intermediate range nuclear missiles that subjected Western Europe to direct nuclear threat, and then in 1979, it had engaged in a major military adventure invading Afghanistan. That's the before picture. Mrs. Thatcher takes office in 1979. Ronald Reagan declares his candidacy in 79, wins in 80, and takes office in 81. And the after picture, and this is surely one of the most striking after pictures in all history, is an empty photograph. The Soviet Union has not merely lost. It has gone out of existence 
1991, the Soviet Union officially becomes defunct. So that's the before and that's the after. Ronald Reagan had something to do with that and so did our guest. Uh, Mr. Schultz, this also bears repeating once in a while. To, we, we, we all know, we who are his colleagues, fortunate enough to be his colleagues, understand in a general sense his eminence. But just get a load of this. A captain in the United States Marine Corps who saw combat <clears throat> in the Pacific. An economist at MIT and the University of Chicago, in the Nixon administration, Secretary of Labor, Director of the Office of Management and the Budget, and then Secretary of the Treasury. Then he becomes Vice President and then President of Bechtel. And then during the Reagan administration, Secretary of State. Ladies and gentlemen, George Schultz. Thank you. I'm going to sit down rather than stand up. I have lousy ankles, so I'll give them a rest. <clears throat> First of all, I want to say, Tom, thank you for organizing this meeting because we say ideas defining a free society. That's what Robert Conquest was about and his life and his interaction with Margaret Thatcher and influence on Ronald Reagan are about ideas that were validated and worked on, factual content given to them, and they were used to define a free society. So that's a good theme. <clears throat> Let me first of all set out some ideas. And they came to a degree from Robert Conquest. I don't think he and Ronald Reagan knew each other personally, and Elizabeth confirmed that. Nevertheless, his influence and his ideas were very strong, and among other things, because of the relationship of Ronald Reagan to Margaret Thatcher. But you mentioned a book that he wrote on the present danger. You remember in the late 70s, there was a committee on the present danger in the United States. And a lot of the people, Reagan was involved in that. And a lot of people that came into his administration, like Paul Nitze, were from the committee. I had the great privilege of having Paul working with me when I was Secretary of State. So one of the ideas is the Soviet Union is a very tough and reprehensible place. You remember a couple of years into his presidency, Ronald Reagan called the Soviet Union an evil empire. All hell broke loose in Washington. And my friend Paul Nitze was testifying before the Senate Armed Services Committee. And they were all berating Paul for Reagan's comment. And sort of the closing was by the then chairman, Carl Levin, who's senator from Michigan. And he said, Paul, how can you serve in an administration that would call the Soviet Union an evil empire? And Paul said, Senator, have you considered the possibility that the statement might be accurate? <laughs> sort of right out of Robert Conquest's book. But there was another element to the ideas involved. Originally, Kennan said, it's an evil empire and if we can contain it long enough, it's very 
essence will cause it to change. Reagan believed that. I believe Margaret Thatcher believed that. I think Robert Conquest believed that. But the doctrine that was used drifted away from that into two ideas, the idea of detente and the idea of linkage. Detente said, we're here, they're there, that's life. The name of the game is peaceful coexistence. Well, when both sides have lots of nuclear arms, peaceful coexistence is important. But detente moved away from the Kennan Doctrine, which both Reagan and Thatcher believed and which I think uh, Robert Conquest believed and got in there. Now here's a little incident which helped me in the Reagan-Thatcher um, relationship. This was before I was in office. Before I was in office, I had been Ronald Reagan's chief economic person in the primaries and in the election campaign and after the election. So we knew each other. He was an honorary fellow here at Hoover, so we knew each other well. <clears throat> I think where I was here. I was giving an example and I forgot what it was. <laughs> oh, I was, before I was in office, and I knew him well, he decided that he didn't like the meetings of heads of government because they all, there were always a pre-negotiated communique and in the communique pre-negotiated there were brackets and the leaders spent their time talking about the brackets and he said, that's no way for leaders to do, that's just, you're the prisoner of the staff. So I said, I want to know directly from the individuals I'm going to meet with what they think and I want to have them know what I think without anybody in between. So he asked me to go around to the G7 and get, give them that information and get. So I went around and I go to London. Margaret is aware of this, I knew her. And so she doesn't want anybody else in the meeting between us. And it was a Sunday, so she organized a luncheon at Checkers that I think was called for one o'clock. So ambassadors and everybody could come. And she quietly invited me to come at 11. So the embassy car comes and picks me up. And there's a young man in it, a political counselor. We ride out to Checkers, you know, there's a place where you check in and there's a long driveway down in a circle. And we get at the circle and there's Margaret standing in the doorway. And I say, hi Margaret, how are you? The young man gets out, I introduce him and he said, oh, Robert here, he's here to take notes, isn't he? I have somebody who can take notes. And she said, here's Steve up here or somebody. He can do that too. And then he looks at my guy and, he, and, and she says, have you ever looked at the notes these people take? They'll begin to get the nuances of what's going on. Then he looks at my guys, have you ever had a good tour of checkers? No, Prime Minister, take them on a tour. <laughs> so off they go. And she takes me in the arm and wheels me into checkers. And there's a nice little room with two chairs and a fireplace going. We sat there for two hours, back and forth, what Reagan thought, what she thought. It was very vigorous and uh, stimulating. 
but also very direct. And I learned what she thought about the Soviet Union, and she learned, and Reagan's ideas were very parallel. <clears throat> so that was a way of connecting. Now I think there's, a, so there's the idea, it's an evil empire, it can change. Another idea that's very important here on which I don't think they agreed. Reagan thought nuclear weapons were immoral and that um, they would destroy civilization. And he wanted to get rid of them, certainly to cut them down in size. <clears throat> so, they have this same view and <clears throat> In 1982, we had a lot of tension. We had a, the Soviets had deployed SS-20 missiles. They were intermediate range missiles that would only go and hit Europe. Their diplomatic idea was to separate the United States from Europe by saying to the United States, we can attack Europe with these weapons, but they won't reach you. So you, will you reach risk retaliation from us by using your intercontinental missiles. That was the diplomatic ploy. So we had an agreement in NATO that we'd have a negotiation with the Soviets about these missiles and other things. And if we couldn't come to a satisfactory conclusion, then there would be deployments in Britain, Italy, and Germany. In Germany, they would be Pershings, that is, ballistic missiles as distinct from cruise missiles. <clears throat> so we have this negotiation and we have very close consultation with Margaret and our other European friends so they could see we were really bargaining in good faith. I might say the Soviets had 1,500 deployed, we had none. And our proposal was zero on both sides. People said, what a crazy proposal. Said, well, that's what we—that's where we want to get. That's our—that's our point. So we had this negotiation. Then comes the Soviet shootdown of a Korean airliner. Remember that? It was brutal. And we had the conversation between the pilot who shot down and his ground control. I mean, we intercepted. We had it literally. And we also knew that there was time passed between when the pilot asked for instructions and when he was given instructions. So the ground control did some consulting with somebody and then shot down the plane. We led the charge in condemning what was done, but we also sent our negotiators back to Geneva. That was a complete break with the concept of linkage. So we broke with detente, we broke with linkage two big ideas that we differed with. But I think it was very important to have done that because it convinced our European allies that we were serious about the negotiations and that was very important in making it possible to have the deployments. <clears throat> the deployments went pretty well. They were controversial in Britain, but we were, didn't worry about it. Margaret would take care of that. They went easily in Italy. But the Pershing missiles in Germany, the ballistic missiles, were a huge problem.
problem. It was a very close business. The Soviets filled the air with war talk. They walked out of the negotiations, and it was a huge thing. We did finally get them deployed. It was a big, big deal. I think it was a turning point in the Cold War. So we discussed that, Ronald Reagan, Margaret Thatcher, me, who she discussed it with, I don't know, probably Bob Conquest. But anyway, we said, okay, we've now exercised strength. We want the Soviets to know that um, we're ready to talk. So Reagan made a kind of broad, high-level high kind of speech that was somewhat, wasn't conciliatory, but it was open to conversation. And we had an international meeting, I think around February of 84, that I went to the Soviets where Gromyko was there and others were there. And I made a more operational speech along the same lines. And I had a meeting with Gromyko that was workmanlike. Then we held our ground. And then as time passed, things began to ease. And in August, I was able to go to President Reagan and say, Mr. President, in four European capitals, a Soviet diplomat has come to one of ours and said virtually the same thing, which we think boils down to if Gromyko is invited to Washington when he comes to the UN General Assembly in September, he will accept. In other words, the Soviets blinked. And I said, you probably want to think this over, Mr. President, because Jimmy Carter cut these off after they invaded Afghanistan, and they're still there. And he said, I don't have to think it over. Let's get them here. So Gomeko came. It was a giant meeting. It was a turning point type meeting. And there was fun one funny little side dish to it. I got along well with Nancy, and I said, Nancy, the deal is going to be, Romico will come to the West Wing, we'll have a meeting in the Oval Office, we'll walk down the colonnade to the mansion, and there'll be some stand around time, then there'll be a working lunch. I said, you're the hostess in the mansion, I want you to be there just to greet. So she liked that idea. So she's there, and Romico sees her, he's a smart Diplomats minute, so he it's his note, but nobody else is in the room. He goes right over to Nancy. And at one point in the conversation, he says to her, does your husband want peace? And Nancy, you know, she can bristle. So she said, of course my husband wants peace. And then he says, well, and every night before he goes to sleep, whisper in his ear, peace. <laughs> so he was a little taller than she is, so she put her arm of hands on his shoulder, and she pulled him down so he had to bend his knee. And she said, I'll whisper it in your ear, peace. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, after the election, then negotiations in Geneva were resumed, and we restarted the arms control talks I did with Gromyko. I might say this is all before Gorbachev. But I always felt one time Gorbachev was here after he left office, and. He was over in my backyard at Stanford. And, uh, Robert was there, I think. Anyway, um, I said, well, when you and I entered office, the Cold War was colder to get. 
And now it's basically all over, but the shouting, what's the turning point? And without any hesitation, he said, Reykjavik. I said, why? Because he said, Reykjavik, the two leaders got together for two full days and talked about everything in candid ways. And he said, what do you think was the turning point? I said, the turning point was when we deployed ba ballistic missiles in Germany. And that showed the cohesion and strength of the Allies. That was not firing a shot, but it was an exhibition of strength. Strength is different from force and more important in many ways. So then comes Gorbachev, of course, and he was a different kind of guy. To show the quality of his mind, he came here after I left office, but he was still in office, and he came to San Francisco. I think he sort of wanted to come and see me, but at any rate, he stayed up in the Soviet consulate, which has a beautiful view of the bay and Golden Gate Bridge. It was a gorgeous day. Then he rode down 280, and he came in Palm Drive and around the Oval, and I'm standing there. And then he looks at me and he says, George, I see you now live in paradise. <laughs> and then he said, of course, I, I imagine you have to pay pretty high taxes to live in a place like this. And he said, You're right on. <laughs> but he had asked for a sort of seminar with some of the leading intellectual lights at Stanford. So I organized one. You had to be practically a Nobel laureate to make the cut. But there were physicists, chemists, biologists, mathematicians, economists, whatnot. And I organized them day before I got them together. And I said, we have an hour. And we got quite a few people here. So you got to think of something to say in your field that has content, but say it in about four minutes. So after I left the meeting, a guy called. He was the earthquake expert. He said, we had an earthquake in San Francisco and of such and such a size. And most things held up pretty well. There are a few things that were old that fell down. But they had an earthquake in Armenia about the same size and everything fell down. I said, why don't you just say the first part and see what happens. <laughs> anyway, we go around the room and Gorbachev responded with content to every comment that was made. It was dazzling, the intellectual command that he had. The earthquake guy said the San Francisco part, and Gorbachev didn't hesitate a second. He said, we had an earthquake in Armenia about the same size and everything fell down. <laughs> and then he said something very revealing, I thought. He said, you have good engineers, but we have good engineers too. Our problem is we can't get people to build things according to the engineering specifications, which was a comment that earlier he had made, but it was a very revealing comment. At any rate, I think the ideas that were produced by Robert Conquest that got into the atmosphere and affected President Reagan and his administration, as well as Margaret Thatcher because of their close association, turned out to be really important. That you have a realistic assessment of what the so what's going on in the Soviet Union. That you understand that it isn't necessarily forever. It's so bad it can maybe have the roots of its own destruction in it. So when you act on that and you, you say detente has the wrong idea, linkage, don't pay too much attention to it. Break with those concepts, you can get somewhere. I didn't read 
and I won't read, but Ronald Reagan gave in June 82 a speech to the British Parliament called the Westminster Speech. And it sets all of this out. It's an astonishing speech to read. It's worth reading um, over and over. So there you are. <laughs> For more podcasts from the Hoover Institution, please visit hoover.org or Hoover's channels on iTunes, iTunes U, Stitcher, and SoundCloud. I'm Chris Dower for the Hoover Institution. Thanks for listening.